Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Upstarts and Rogues, the American Insurgency, 1774 to 1776. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, the First Continental Congress. The First Continental Congress, gathered in Philadelphia in September 1774, 55 delegates from 12 colonies, all except Georgia, met in order to discuss the situation in Boston. During the meeting's opening days, rumors circulated that the British had shelled and destroyed Boston. In response, thousands of farmers from four different colonies spontaneously rushed to Boston's aid, only to discover there had been no attack. This bizarre series of events probably inspired the Congress to take a more radical stance than many delegates had planned. In other words, ordinary Americans were driving the revolution forward. Congress ultimately adopted several resolves rejecting the coercive acts and asserting the people's right to nullify parliamentary laws they deemed unconstitutional. In addition, the Congress agreed to reconvene in May 1775 if the British government had not addressed their grievances. The Congress also established Continental Associations, which charged thousands of local committees with enforcing non-importation and non-consumption. Since the merchants had done a poor job of enforcing this, the people took the lead. Local committees shamed, harassed, interrogated, shunned, and occasionally attacked people who violated non-consumption agreements. However, they usually discouraged violence because reconciliation and reincorporation was their main goal. These committees, called committees of safety, gradually and haphazardly assumed the role of local governments in the colonies. But not everyone is happy with these limited steps. Go ahead and click on the hyperlink to watch a clip from John Adams. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Military Preparations. Meanwhile, both the colonists and the British were making military preparations. General Gage and his troops were entrenching in Boston. By November of 1775, King George III told his top ministers that, quote, the New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent, end quote. So to George III, it's already a matter of revolution. The British government continued to believe that a handful of rebel leaders in New England were stirring up mobs and causing all the trouble. Yet evidence indicates that by this time, colonial resistance was much more widespread. Meanwhile, the colonial militias, especially in New England, were stockpiling gunpowder and arms, which they claimed were for defensive purposes only. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Militia. Since there is so much misinformation out in the public regarding gun rights and the Second Amendment, I am going to briefly place that tradition in historical context to illustrate how partisan politicians and the media use memory for their various agendas. The idea of a citizen militia goes back to England with the Aziz of Arms in 1181, which was later strengthened in 1285 in the Statute of Winchester, which stated, quote, Every man shall have in his house arms for keeping the peace, according to the ancient Aziz, end quote. 
This law was then expanded in 1581, which required a certain amount of training and equipment to be held by free people in the kingdom. This legal tradition came with the colonists to the Americas, and English citizens on both sides of the Atlantic distrusted standing armies, which is why they believed that the militia had to do the business of war, at least until the 1700s. The first full colonial muster came in Massachusetts Bay in 1636 during the Pequot War. Militias waxed and waned over the next century, depending on time and place. But overall, the militias, north and south, had several things in common. According to law, only property-owning male residents aged 18 to 45 could participate in the militia, though some non-propertied men were also allowed to serve in the ranks when need arose. They were required to sign up on a central registration for the town or county. In addition, citizens had to supply their own firearms, preferably a musket with a bayonet. Though special stipulations did exist for frontiersmen, as only frontiersmen could use a rifle as a substitute, all citizens had to furnish powder, ball, flints, and other equipment to participate in the militia. And everyone had to make sure that their weapons were properly maintained and stored in a central armory. However, individuals did keep other hunting weapons at home for their own purposes. Militiamen were required to train several times a year, and these training exercises took place over the course of a week, obviously planned around the planting season. In some colonies, this was merely an excuse to drink and have fun, but many others took it deadly seriously. Officers were generally made up of the prominent men in society. Militia duty was widely seen as something that earned one political participation and respect. This is the building of the idea that armed service is the duty of citizens and earns one a badge of citizenship. This is a powerful idea throughout American history, that service earns citizenship, and it will be the basis for black men's calls for citizenship and voting rights after their extensive service in the American Civil War. But that is a story for another day. Typically, the regular army distrusted the militia, whom they viewed as undisciplined, quarrelsome, pious, and unreliable. Colonists, in turn, viewed regular soldiers as uncouth, profane, and immoral, and these views would lead to issues between the two groups of soldiers during the American Revolution. Ever since the Revolution, people wondered, how effective was the militia? Honestly, it did have its moments, but by and large, it failed to compare with British regulars or even the French colonial militia. The militia of New France trained more, had fewer exemptions, was under the direct control of the French colonial governor, and had to serve throughout New France. The French militia was more effective in forest warfare than their English opponents. And while some American units in western Virginia, Kentucky, and Rogers New England Rangers were effective in bush tactics, most English colonial militia were ill-trained. Rather than the popular image of the backwoodsman sharpshooter, the regular British army actually had to detach men to learn woodcraft and forest fighting. Much of the problem lay in the fact that the colonies were ever at variance and foolishly jealous of one another, which prevented them from co-opting with one another even during war. 
This will become readily apparent during the American Revolution. Regardless, the militia system lasted until the creation of the National Guard in the Militia Act of 1903 and the National Defense Act of 1916, when it became obvious that to project imperial power abroad, the militia system could not cut it. So, why did I take the time to highlight the nuances of history here? Because of talking heads, politicians, and social media. We have this idea, or popular memory, or modern political argument, that private individuals on their own were arming themselves against tyranny and oppression. Other popular arguments state that these are professional armies with weapons of war that are kept out of the hands of private citizens and that these situations do not apply to today. And well, there is some truth to all of these points, and that element of truth is used in numerous modern arguments about gun rights. Now, I am not coming down for or against either side of this modern argument. All I am saying is that individuals did have weapons, especially on the frontier. That was the reality of the age. But the militias that were called out against the British were highly regulated and maintained, with registries, centralized storage, training, and rigid rules. So all sides of the modern gun debate miss specific historical context in order to win debates rather than to illustrate historical nuance. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Lexington and Concord. In April of 1775, General Gage was ordered to stop the open rebellion in Massachusetts. Some informants had alerted Gage to the hostility in the countryside, but officials in Britain were pressuring him to act. So on the night of April 18th, Gage dispatched 700 redcoats to Concord, which is 20 miles northwest of Boston, to seize the colonists' military supplies. Hearing of this expedition, Paul Revere and William Dawes, members of Boston's Committee of Safety, rode to spread the alarm. Hearing of similar rumors in New York... 16-year-old Sybil Lundington rode all night over 40 miles from Putnam County, New York to Danbury, Connecticut to raise the alarm, again illustrating the role of women in the Revolution. At dawn on April 19th, an advanced unit of 238 redcoats arrived in Lexington, Massachusetts and found 70 colonial Minutemen waiting for them upon the town green. The Minutemen were volunteer militiamen who were supposedly there only to observe and protest. John Parker, a veteran of the French and Indian War and leader of the militia, told his men, quote, Stand your ground. Do not fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. End quote. In response, a redcoat officer rode onto the green, swung his sword, and yelled, quote, Lay down your arms, you damned rebels, and disperse. End quote. Then someone, we do not know who, fired a shot, and the redcoats unleashed a volley and charged with bayonets, killing eight Minutemen and wounding ten more, including a black slave, Prince Eastabrook. Again, another African American martyr for the cause of liberty. Go ahead and click on the link on the PowerPoint and you will see a clip from the movie April Morning, which is a fantastic movie about Lexington and Concord. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Road to Boston. The Redcoats then regrouped and marched on to Concord, 
where the colonists had been already carried away most of their weapons. Fighting at Concord ensued, which Ralph Waldo Emerson later described as the, quote, shot heard round the world. By noon, the Redcoats were retreating back to Boston, and all along the way, rebel farmers fired at them from behind trees, walls, rocks, houses, and barns. This was guerrilla warfare. By the day's end, 273 Redcoats and 95 Rebels had been killed or wounded. The surviving Redcoats were safely back in Boston, but the colonists soon surrounded and besieged them by land. According to one Connecticut newspaper, the British troops at Lexington had, quote, unmolested and unprovoked wantonly and inhumanely manner fired upon and killed a number of our countrymen, end quote. One historian said that the news of the American sacrifices at Lexington and Concord, quote, served to transform and collate assumptions about an imagined solidarity, a country of the mind, into a force that we might call nationalism, end quote. In this historian's view, and many contemporaries of the time, April 19th, 1775, not July 4th, 1776, was the key date in which many ordinary Americans decided that they wanted independence. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Second Continental Congress. In May of 1775, the Second Continental Congress gathered at Philadelphia. No one knew it at the time, but this Congress would serve as America's de facto national government throughout the Revolution. By necessity, Congress was forced to deal with military matters, and Congress took control of the colonial militia that had gathered in Massachusetts and agreed to form a Continental Army. On June 15th, 43-year-old and Virginia militia colonel George Washington, who had arrived in Congress wearing his uniform, was chosen to serve as commander-in-chief. Washington had showed up every day in uniform, so he's kind of the obvious choice. And John Hancock was pissed, because he expected to get the command. John Adams later wrote, quote, I had no hesitation to declare that I had but one gentleman in my mind for that important command, and that was a gentleman from Virginia who was among us, very well known to all of us, a gentleman whose skill and experience as an officer, whose independent fortune, great talents, and excellent universal character would command the approbation of all Americans and unite the cordial exertions of the colonies better than any person could. End quote. So basically, not only was Washington famous, but he was also from Virginia, and since Virginia was the largest state, it should be at the head of the business. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Battle of Bunker Hill. Meanwhile, back in Boston, colonial militia were laying siege to the British by land. On June 16th, the militia on the Charlestown Peninsula, north of Boston, pushed their lines forward and occupied Breed's Hill. British commanders understood that if the Americans could place cannons atop these hills, they could shell the British fleet. So the British decided to take them. On June 17th, 2,200 redcoats assaulted Breed's Hill. One American commander called out to his men not to fire until they saw the white of their eyes. The first attack failed as an American volley knocked the British down. The second assault met a similar fate. But the third charge, the Americans had run out of ammo and threw rocks. 
the Redcoats charged with bayonets and took the hill. Despite taking place on Breed's Hill, early reports called the battle Bunker Hill. The British had achieved their objectives of taking the hill, but they suffered a staggering 1,054 casualties in the process. One British general said of the battle, quote, A dearly bought victory, another such will ruin us. End quote. At Breed's Hill, the Americans suffered 400 casualties, including numerous African Americans, such as Salem Poor, who served throughout the Revolutionary War and received numerous citations from bravery from his commander. As a result of the battle, the Americans proved that they could go toe-to-toe with the greatest power in the world, which was huge for morale. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Washington Takes Command. On July 3rd, Washington assumed command of 16,000 militiamen outside of Boston. Over the next several months, Washington proposed that his army make frontal assaults against the entrenched British, but thankfully, his general staff overruled him. On July 6th, Congress adopted a declaration on taking up arms, which said, quote, We have not raised armies with ambitious designs of separating from Great Britain and establishing independent states. We shall lay them down when hostilities shall cease on the part of the aggressors, and all danger of their being renewed shall be removed, and not before. End quote. This illustrates that many colonists were still proud to be British and did not want independence, as they knew that life outside of the British Empire could be dangerous. Yet at the same time, many colonists believed they should be governed by their local legislatures and not Parliament. In October of 1775, King George III gave a speech saying that the American colonists were revolting, quote, for the purpose of establishing an independent empire. The authors and promoters of this desperate conspiracy meant only to amuse by vague expressions of attachment to the parent state and the strongest protestations of loyalty to me while they are preparing for a general revolt, end quote. Of course, the Continental Congress did not get word of this speech until January 1776, which had disastrous results. And go ahead and click on the hyperlink to watch a clip from the movie John Adams. Please advance to the next slide entitled, War and Emancipation. In November of 1775, the Virginia royal governor, Lord Dunmore, issued a proclamation, quote, As I have ever entertained hopes that an accommodation might have taken place between Great Britain and this colony without being compelled by my duty to this most disagreeable but now absolutely necessary step, I do, in virtue of the power and authority to me given by His Majesty, determine to execute martial law and to the end that peace and good order may the sooner be effected, I do require every person capable of bearing arms to resort to His Majesty's standard or to be looked upon as traitors to His Majesty's crown and government and thereby become liable to the penalty of the law that inflicts upon such offenses such as forfeiture of life, confiscation of lands, and I here do by further declare all indentured servants, negroes or others appertaining to rebels, free, that are able and willing to bear arms, they joining his majesty's troops as soon as may be, for the most speedily reducing this colony to a proper sense of their duty to his majesty's liege subjects. End quote. Within a few months, a thousand slaves had run to Dunmore, and hundreds were captured while trying to do so. 
They joined Dunmore's Ethiopian regiment in some war sashes that said, Liberty to Slaves. According to one historian, quote, The slaves of many Virginia's leading white revolutionary figures now became black revolutionary Virginians themselves. End quote. This is another example of a social revolution occurring alongside the political revolution against Great Britain. Dunmore's proclamation convinced a number of Southern colonists who had been reluctant to join the revolutionary cause that reconciliation with Great Britain was no longer possible. Many Americans said that if the British were willing to start a slave revolt, then they did not want to be part of Great Britain anymore. And royal officials even tried enlisting Native American tribes to attack rebels, so these Americans are upset at a potential slave revolt in Native American attacks. Thus, Virginians are upset at these issues, and this may be the true source of the movement for independence in the southern colonies. In December, Parliament passed and the King approved the Prohibitory Act, which said that the colonies could no longer trade with one another or the world. And it also put all American ships, ports, and sailors under the control of the British Navy. Lastly, it said that any colonial ship could be taken as a prize, which means there is no more protection for colonial shipping going forward, and this is a huge deal. John Adams said of this act that it should be called the, quote, Act of Independency, end quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Common Sense. In January of 1776, Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, was first published. Unlike other elite pamphlets of the time, it did not reference political theories or philosophers, but instead used common sense language and arguments in inflammatory language. Paine wrote, quote, Small islands, not capable of protecting themselves, are the proper objects for kingdoms to take under their care, but there is something very absurd in supposing a continent to be perpetually governed by an island. End quote. Paine further said that American freedom would never be secure under British rule because the monarchy itself was the problem. In other words, he was blaming the king, which was a big deal. Up to this time, most colonists had blamed Parliament or the king's corrupt ministers for the empire's problems, but they continued to view themselves as loyal subjects of the king. By blaming the king, Paine was suggesting that independence was necessary. Paine wrote, quote, Everything that is right or natural pleads for separation. The blood of the slain, the weeping voice of nature cries, "'Tis time to part. No man was a warmer wisher for reconciliation than myself before the fatal 19th of April, 1775, but the moment the event of that day was made known, I rejected the hardened, sullen-tempered pharaoh of England forever, and disdained the wretch that with the pretender title of father of his people can unfeelingly hear of their slaughter and composedly sleep with their blood upon his soul. We have every opportunity and every encouragement before us to form the noblest, purest constitution on the face of the earth. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. End quote. This is arguably one of the most important pieces of journalism in American history. 120,000 copies were sold in the first month alone, and perhaps 10 to 20 people read each copy, which means that the majority of the American populace of 2.5 million people probably read or heard Paine's words. Historian Gary Nash wrote, quote, 
If the crack of a rifle at Concord Bridge was the first shot heard around the world in April 1775, then Payne's common sense was the second shot heard round the world in January 1776, end quote. However, not everybody liked it. John Adams described Payne's pamphlet as a, quote, poor, ignorant, malicious, and short-sighted, crapulous mass, end quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Relief of Boston. During the Siege of Boston, General Henry Knox brought artillery from Fort Ticonderoga. He hauled it across the frozen lakes and across the Berkshire Mountains, and this was called the Noble Train of Artillery. The Americans then mounted artillery on the heights overlooking Boston, and the British had to skedaddle, even though they did not know that the Americans did not have enough gunpowder to actually fire the pieces. In March, British troops evacuated Boston and left for Halifax, Nova Scotia. By May, Congress received word that the king was sending German mercenaries, Hessians, to help crush the American rebellion, and most Americans believed this was despicable. By June 9th, 130 British ships left Halifax and headed towards New York, where they landed on Staten Island on July 3rd. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Resolution. We tend to think that a piece of paper signed by a couple of dudes in Philadelphia made us independent. In fact, the push for independence was widespread. The first step actually occurred earlier in May, when Congress told colonies to remake their own colonial governments and create constitutions. What is more, locals led efforts towards independence. Massachusetts had every town vote on independence, and they voted in the affirmative. Maryland was on the fence about independence and asked their towns if they favored it, and their positive response helped push Maryland in favor of the motion. Across the colonies, over 90 separate communities issued their own declarations of independence, and this led Congress to follow suit and take bold action. On June 7th, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia presented a resolution to the Continental Congress which stated, quote, Resolved that these united colonies are, and of a right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved, end quote. The resolution was tabled until early July to give the reluctant colonies time to get on board. On June 11th, Congress appointed a five-man committee, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, Sherman and Livingston, to prepare a Declaration of Independence. But the main drafter of the document was Thomas Jefferson. On June 28th, the committee presented its declaration to Congress. Over the next few weeks, Congress debated and discussed the Declaration of Independence and changed one quarter of the original document as Thomas Jefferson squeamed in the back. On July 2nd, Congress unanimously adopted the previously tabled resolution for independence, with all states voting in the affirmative, except for New York, who absented from the vote because the British were about to land on Staten Island. By July 4th, Congress sent the Declaration of Independence to the printer, and congressional delegates signed the document at various times well into the fall. John Adams would later predict that July 2nd would be known as American Independence Day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Declaration of Independence. As I said before, 
there were 80 separate changes to the Declaration of Independence, including the dropping of any reference to the slave trade imposed upon them by Great Britain, and the changing of the term unalienable rights from the previous sacred and undeniable rights, because Franklin thought it smacked too much like the pulpit. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. End quote. You should notice that Jefferson's line is very similar to John Locke's statement on natural rights. And Jefferson probably got the right to pursue our happiness from George Mason's draft of the Virginia Constitution. However, not everything that Jefferson wrote was shared among American sentiments, including his comment that all men are created equal. While Jefferson probably believed that all humans were made by their creator, he did not believe that black and Indian men or women were equal to white men, and he certainly did not believe that those groups should be allowed to vote or hold office. Another problematic aspect with the Declaration of Independence that is usually skipped over is the claims that the king was going to have an African-American insurrection and Native Americans rise up to slaughter the colonists. The Declaration of Independence was not necessarily all that original. As Jefferson said, quote, "...neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular in previous writing, it was intended to be an expression of the American mind." End quote. Regardless, historian Gordon Wood believes that Jefferson were rejecting the rules of the old world, where your birth determined your position in life, and thus your power politically. This rejection is why, in my opinion, the American Revolution was so radical. Even though heads weren't flying like they were during the French Revolution a few years later, this is breaking with the theory of monarchy and putting forward the concept of sovereignty resting with the people. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are making smart decisions and staying safe. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.